Just the other night, I went to a major forum in a city in Sydney uh, about shaping our city and the effects of transport. It was put on by the Arab Consulting Group, uh, of which one of the main speakers was our very own Brian Smith, who joins us on the line, along with Errol Smith. We'll talk some quirky news later, but let's talk more about the serious subjects of transport and the effect that they have on shaping our city. Brian, thank you very much for your time. G'day, David. And Errol, welcome to the discussion. Thank you, David. Thank you, Brian. Now, Brian, you began your talk with a graph that really wasn't immediately apparent why it was related to transport. Can you describe it to me? That's right, David. The graph is about uh, how heterosexual couples in the US first met between uh, 1940 and 2009. And, and you wouldn't think this has anything to do with transport. But what I was trying to illustrate was the, the rapidity and the um, dr dramatic outcomes from um, uh, people's adoption of new technology. So what you have are the conventional sort of met at college, met at work, met through friends, met at a restaurant. Uh, and then at about 2009, 2010, a, a brand new entry comes in, met online. And uh, the trend for this, uh, all the other trends, you know, stay pretty much the same. But once met online comes in into force, it, it dives upwards until uh, within a decade, it's the basically the number two um, means of uh, meeting people and, and all the others have have dived downwards um, so meeting online replaces most of the other means of people meeting and that data only went up to 2009 and I imagine meeting online is now number one but uh, it was just a nice illustration uh, of, of how dramatically uh, new technology can change people's behavior mm, that, 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 that's probably uh, probably pre-tinder and those oh, types of, uh, of, yes. uh, of uh, more, more direct uh, dating apps. So, uh, yeah, it certainly Yeah, you're exactly right. But, but I, I think your point, Brian, was that, that transport also has also had an influence on dating. I think you go back to cars that when came in. If you go back to 1900, the average US male travelled 19,000 miles in a lifetime. Now they travel almost that per year. I'm not trying to be just male. That's just where the statistics are. But, of course, the car changed that. And, of course, it changed genetics enormously that you could go across town to meet a, a, a partner. You could go a much greater distance. So it goes greater diversity. Now the next stage is this Internet where you're meeting across the world. And you may never meet physically meet the person on the other end and <laughs> discover that they're a Russian mafia person rather than the uh, attractive woman you thought they were. Yes, I wonder whether that's a, a measure of who you think you've met and what you know, <laughs> uh, represents a partner in the short term versus long-term consequences. One of those things that we thought early in the piece was uh, that you know, soon after the internet became a tool for meeting people, people might have been a bit embarrassed to to admit that they met people on the internet and perhaps would you know, say if they had their first date at a restaurant, that's where they met. But I suspect we're beyond that uh, now and that, um, you know, uh, the stigma of, of meeting online has gone away somewhat. They asked the question at the forum, and it was a good one, uh, what do we think is different now in terms of travel than when we grew up? And, Brian, I, I think what we were talking about, the fact that when we grew up, you just hopped in the car anytime, anywhere, and drove you think that that may change a bit? Well, yeah, I think there's still a, uh, a large factor in our travel patterns 
is our freedom to do that. And I think that now that we can get a lot more data on people's travel and we have a lot more connectedness uh, and we're more used to the idea of uh, user pays for, for online activities, then really we can start to, I think, apply some of the real costs of travel to people uh, and to help uh, them to you know, make better choices and perhaps uh, make more sustainable choices about where they live and where they travel to. It's not a communist rule that says you can't do it. It's just giving more information. There used to be a program called Smart Travel, may still be going, which makes people sit down and think about how they're travelling and is it efficient. If you've got a price on that or even the fact that to travel in the peak hour you may have to book your time ahead, it's not saying you can't do it. It's just saying that there may be more information about that, how much it will cost you and perhaps more availability of capacity, whether that capacity is actually available. Thus, it may make our choices of travel more planned and more carefully considered. Yeah, it'd be good for people to think more about their choices because every vehicle on the road is having an impact on any other, every other road mm. user. And so uh, we're not really at the moment paying anywhere near the true costs of, of our travel to the community. Um, and yeah, it'd be just nice to be able to get an understanding of what the options are. And of course, digital provides us with a lot more choices and a lot more options for, for how we can travel. New South Wales government, of course, is uh, kind of at the moment considering that uh, they may move to some kind of distance-based charging for travel in cars uh, in return for um, reductions in fuel tax and registration. And I think uh, Transurban, of course, is pushing that particular line. But then again, they, they do have the vested interest that they would want to provide the system yes. to actually do it. It's not to say they're wrong. Which would give them a, uh, and the government a huge amount of data on where every single vehicle involved in the system is. Because, of course, every system, every vehicle would have to have a GPS in it that um, recorded where it was. Well, from a transport planner's point of view, that's lovely, mm. the idea of having that sort of data and, mm. and understanding it. it, it it's, it's also a big brother's fantasy. Yes, of course. But back to your earlier point, I, I think this is just an evolution of, of what people do already. You know, I, I know a lot of people who will often go to a shopping centre, for example, that's actually further away than the nearest one because they know it's easy to get a park. Yeah. Well, the traffic is not as bad around that one or, or whatever. So Errol, there's, there's people of... who will choose deliberately to go to a, a shopping centre that's further away to justify driving rather than walking to a closer one. Okay. The other issue is when I was young, you'd go to the shopping centre, come home, say, oh, blast, I forgot something, I'll go down again. Went back again. Now we might have to say, well, okay, if I'm going to the shops, it's going to take time and effort and cost to do it. I better maximise that so I'll, I'll think more about it. Or... Other alternatives saying I'm going to take the kids to sport, maybe I will link up with a neighbour and we'll go in one car. Mm, yes. It just makes you think more. Yes, I mean, 20 years ago, you, you didn't have to factor in the half an hour of driving around the car park looking for a spot and then the other, <laughs> and then trying to get out of the, the, the car park again at the end. There may become a time where you can't go to, say, the centre of the city without having a spot booked of which to park the car, which, among other things, will stop circulating traffic. Mm. But that's another story. Brian, the point you made, too, was to have transport interchanges and, and, and depots 
in the sense of people getting on and off it is not just for the sake of traveling is it there's there's more to that activity it's more of an activity more than just travel oh absolutely so network rail in the uk is uh recently reported that uh that up to 25% of the people in some of their key stations, including St Pancras at King's Cross and some other major stations, uh, are not travellers, that they're there for the other retail and commercial activities, particularly retail, that are located now in these um, you know, modern best practice interchanges. So they, our approach is we, we say it's a place, it's not an interchange, it's not a facility for vehicles, it's a place for people. And, and so if you combine or provide a lot of the, the things that, that you can offer to large numbers of people who are coming to a terminal for, for travel, then you can generate other activity and can uh, improve users' experience. It makes it a whole experience and a more pleasurable experience. I think it's particularly we've done it badly with bus stops. I don't mean just a local one. I mean even bus interchanges. But we've done it well with trains in the past. Melbourne is now redoing their Spencer Street station, which used to have a ballroom in it. Yeah. And, you know, it became a part of the culture, not just a means of travel. But, of course, bus stops and bus interchanges to my mind, are pretty dingy. The, the one to Tullamarine Airport is alongside the taxi ranks, which are really down market. We could make much more of that. Uh, and I think you've seen in even some modern bus interchange design, they're just the sort of concrete places that you get on a bus rather than have a broader activity. Yeah, there's a long way to go. I worked on a project in Christchurch that is a good example of the best practice uh, um, and it's it's really a part of the city first. It, it helps to rebuild the broken city of Christchurch and and reestablish a shopping street. Um, but the the uh, the bus station is uh, you know a shopping street on one side, a, a passenger lounge in the middle, and uh, and on the edge are buses. So uh, it's a kind of a multifunction space. You also, Brian, have talked about. Uh, and I digress a little here, but it goes back to some of your earlier work, where to get on a bus on a footpath in the city, it's often very crowded and there's jostling, where the thing of turning one of the shop fronts into a lounge where you can wait in more comfort. Yeah, this is a thing I've been trying to launch here in Australia for quite some time. I, I've done a couple of them in uh, New Zealand. And, uh, and it, yes, you just take over a shop front and uh, you... You allow, create a nice comfortable lounge that's off street. You provide a lot of space and, and vis uh, visibility for people so that they're, they're not um, disadvantaged by waiting inside a more comfortable space. They can still see their bus. You can use uh, electronic real-time information to, to let them know when their bus is approaching. But the cool thing is you, you relieve a bit of pressure from the footpath. You can then, um, in that more comfortable environment, feel put shops and connections through to other activity and uh, if you move the bus stop in future you can just refit it back to a shop it's not a special mm. piece of kit and so it does start to to give a higher quality waiting environment for the conventional street bus stop I, I like the idea of then having something on the screen that says when your bus is about to arrive. What I don't like about sitting waiting at a bus stop is I'm reading a book and I'm forever looking up at every bus that comes past in case it's mine and wanting to make sure I've actually signaled the driver yeah. so he doesn't... Zing, the the so great through. thing about real-time information, it can remove a whole lot of that uncertainty. And if you know your bus is 10 or 20 minutes away, you can go and do something else. 
you don't have to arrive at the stop or or the the actual boarding location until just before it's due. So so Brian, is there also an idea that the back of these waiting waiting shops uh, can have a little cafe in it or something? Yes, yeah. The one one of the ones I built in uh, Christchurch had uh, a wee cafe in the back. Um, they also could connect through to other shopping centres, have toilets. One of them had sort of branch library kind of thing operating where you could return books for the library. Isn't that lovely? I think that's a great idea. They're doing things within urban areas of having, you know, people just leave books, free books, that you can come and sit. Yeah. Some people in the city of Sydney even put out deck chairs in the summertime where people can sit down and enjoy the environment. It's linking activity, not just hopping on a, on a bus or a train. The other thing that came out, they had a, a lady there who was from France, uh, and she talked about the diversity of trips that we make. She made a couple of, of things. One third of all the trips travelling for work only use the morning and afternoon peak period. In other words, at least one of their trips is outside the peak. Yet we think of the journey to work as only people getting up in the morning and going in the peak and coming home in the peak. It's not that simple, as well as the fact that I think she said 80% of trips are for things other than journey to work. Diversity is, uh, and understanding that, is a very important point. Mm. You would see that as understanding the city, Brian? Agree, um, and, and appreciating all the other reasons that people travel. And we're not going to cater for that simply by having a very simple view. They talked also, of course, about increasing trips on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, and this is the importance of having a network rather than just a, a pure radial sort of public transport system that brings everyone to the city. Um, you've got to have a, an integrated network that allows you maybe by tra changing modes to, to make many more types of trips to other destinations. Mm. And, of course, the majority of jobs are not in the city anyway, even if yeah. you are discussing, um, you know, Travel journey to, to work. Travels to work, yeah. The other point, though, is you've got to watch how implementing one thing may change another. A lot of talk about uh, telecommuting, not necessarily all the time, working at home all the time, but maybe for a couple of hours and then travelling in the non-peak period mm. or perhaps a couple of days at home and then travelling. But that may lead to people actually living further from the city. I can enjoy the remoteness and only have a bad travel day or a long travel day uh, once or twice a week. Yeah, there's a few uh, sort of strengths and weaknesses of that idea. I, I'm not a big fan of people travelling long distances for work, even if it's only for a day or two a week, because to, to live in a, a car-based environment um, for the rest of the time. Quite often you get radial trips to the CBD, but you get all the other trips are filled in by car. Mm. I think they were saying in Ballarat and Bendigo in Victoria... There's been a, a big increase there since they improved the rail system. But gee, those rail systems take a lot of energy. Yeah, and a lot of uh, subsidy for fares. Huge subsidy. I believe the subsidy from going to the Gold Coast to the Brisbane, which everyone's saying is fantastic because the train is full, I believe the subsidy is in the order of $300 per seat per trip. <laughs> I've heard that figure. I haven't been able to justify it. But the, the point is, it, I mean, it takes a lot of energy to do that. I don't mean personal energy. I mean, you know, energy uh, in, in, uh, in an environmental sense. The interesting thing, Brian, is that Arab actually has a, the guy, uh, Chris Lubekenman, uh, and he's as part of Arab's Foresight Research and Innovation. It's interesting that a company 
is seeing itself as not just doing the day-to-day projects that clients want, it's trying to take a broader vision. Yes, yeah, Arup is, uh, I'm quite pleased to say, a company that does value uh, you know, research and innovation. We have a, a, an arm called Arab University where uh, anyone in Arab can propose a, a research project and be funded to do it. It's interesting those are getting involved. Even things, as we talked about Transurban getting involved, for, for obviously a commercial reason, but um, they are adding to our wealth of knowledge. Gentlemen, lovely to talk to you. In a minute, we'll talk some quirky news. 